0: Tell me one more story, can you go all the way back, to Richmond around then, before you knew what was possible, and there's a relic in your old hands, and strong words to fight with, I think we should walk away, I saw you through the glass door, and I was
1: now let me um go off script here and fast forward to your 20s yeah so this has has persisted <laughs> yeah so yeah uh-huh. in a way that you're you're you know if, if i if i can understand some of your essence around that age you're the life of the party yeah you're walking in you're whatever it is that you are charismatic to chug this beer and, and you're going to be right there with everybody, Uh Uh, but to your own demise in a lot of ways, you know, that this, this goal of making everybody like you, um, becomes detrimental to your own health. Correct. Yeah, deadly. Um, so
2: I, I was, um, I became quite a delinquent in my, you know, tweens. Um, I really, uh, intellectually you know m- emotionally dropped out of school probably around 4th grade and that was about the time that race was was really hitting me in the face i understood it was a major problem and um you know i i wasn't being taken seriously by by anybody nobody encouraged my talents um i wasn't prepared for anything um But so I, you know, I got into trouble. I, I was a criminal. Um, I was arrested many times. Some of them quite major arrests, drugs, crime, you know, breaking into houses and whatnot. Um, I, uh, I was never violent, but uh, I had a lot of internal rage. You know, they say depression is rage turned inside out, you know? So I would, I was probably, you know, severely depressed and I didn't understand it at the time, but I was suffering the early, um, manifestations of, of post-traumatic stress disorder, you know, that typically arise, you know, arise in really, you know, 19 years old, they start becoming, the symptoms become really apparent typically, but even early, I I remember those symptoms coming on, never could sleep well and, um, Anyway, so I was acting out, getting in trouble, getting arrested, um, and I got kicked out of high school. I was, uh, I was escorted out by the police, in fact, and um, I was out in the world at, I think I was 16, and um, I had to work. I had been working anyway, but uh, didn't spend much time at home for many years before that. His home was not a place that felt safe. I didn't mention yet that um, my, my adoptive parents, although well-intending, um, both suffered undiagnosed mental illness and untreated mental illness. Um, some, some was diagnosed and untreated and some uh, limitations that they just didn't choose to, to overcome or manage. Um, and my, and one of my, my mother, uh, my adoptive mother was physically abusive and they were both neglectful. Um, so it was rough. Um, you know, I think it, it, uh, sort of, uh, I'm probably not the only adoptee to hear this, but it was frequent that, um, when I would be in trouble and I was frequently in trouble, threatened that I would be brought back to the adoption agency where I came from. You know, that was my origin.
1: Bring you back <laughs> to the store exactly you want to turn this one back in this one's defective yeah. and then later
2: you know sometimes in, in addition to that i would be threatened to go to military academy or boarding school or whatnot And you know it was terrifying you know very young i ran away in reaction to this and that's in my book but um so you know i i i was fortunate at that time to uh to get a job with a with a carpenter, a, fr- uh, a friend's father who was building houses. And um, I was able to put a few dollars in my pocket and eventually saved um, to get out of Dodge. And I had been traveling around the country a lot before then with the Grateful Dead. And when I left, you'll recall that I, when I was a child, I I had said to one friend one time that i was native american and that had followed me around until i was i think at the time 19 years old and you know i'd been on my own for a long time prior to that i still you know ostensibly lived at school at uh at my parents house but um you know that's where my things were really uh in any event i went i decided i have some i had some deadhead friends down in uh, richmond virginia And I decided I was going to get out of Dodge and use the the transition to come out as a proud Latino American because I had never openly discussed any race or ethnicity and shrugged off the references to me being Native American that I had carried around with me because of a, you know, when I was, I don't know, five, six years old. And so when I was in my Ford line, driving out of my little hometown, I looked in the rearview mirror and I said, that's it. I will never be anything um, shameful and I will never feel shame about how I was born ever again. And I got to Richmond, the capital of the Confederacy, running away from racism and (laughs) found myself newly Latino and I had to figure out how to do it. And so, um, yeah, that was the beginning of a of a new, a renewed, really first, really a first swing at an authentic ethnic identity. So I didn't still know who, what I was. I thought maybe Puerto Rican or Chilean, maybe both, wasn't sure. But I knew I was Latino. That was pretty clear. And, well, and that's how I'd represent myself.
1: Well, I mean, that right. sounds like a pretty clean cut from your family as far as, um, you know, both geographically as well as ethnically, you oh, know, yeah. simultaneously are, are coming out, as you say. Yeah. Um, as if you weren't out this whole time. It's not, I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't. You know, it's, like, you it's know,
2: like it's like a, yeah,
1: it's, it's like a, the guy
2: who everybody knows is gay except for him until he's you know 50 years old. That was me with adoption, and then you know, that I was traumatized. I mean, and and for me, it was 20 years old with race or ethnicity. So, you know, it felt very much like coming out and I hope that's not offensive to our LGBTQ plus listeners. Um, I don't mean it to be offensive, but I've talked to some people before uh, in the gay community about coming out and they didn't think it was too far afield to suggest that it was a similarly um, relieving moment very, very, it was so yeah, I can, difficult.
1: I, can see, I don't think there's any ownership of that, of that term tribes, what you went through very well. Um,
2: yeah, I was, clo- I was
1: a closeted ethnicity and
2: um, I pretended that I was something I was not until I couldn't take the pressure anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it wasn't until 30 years later that I could feel good about myself still, but that was this sp- that was the
1: first step. Yeah. Okay. So then, um, where was the ultimate demise? Where was the? Where was your lowest point? Talk about. You yeah, you're, know. you're jumping quite ahead. Oh, I, I know. I, I know. I'm long in our. This is an hour podcast. <laughs> so I want to get to the. Right. here, Michael. So, where, where, you know, so what? Where's the? All
2: right. So I'll speed up in the middle part here. So um, I, I ended up taking my skills that I learned in apprenticeships in cabinet making in Virginia. I had several different opportunities to learn that trade. And, um, I, I moved to Chicago to meet up with some, uh, friends there. Um, uh, we got a place together. I ran out of money, got stuck in Chicago and met my first wife. And, um, I was on my way to Oregon. Actually, uh, my friend blue, who's still my best friend to this day. Um, was he and I and his his new at the time his his new serious girlfriend, who's now his wife of I don't know twenty five years or so. Um, we were all going to go out to to Oregon because you know I heard some hippies talking about it and they sounded like they were positive. So in any event, I was traveling without real intention. Uh, I met my first wife. I opened up a little cabinet making business and had. A small amount of success. I was able to pay the bills, but I was coming home and I was uh, reading instead of doing my pricing, pricing my jobs, and doing drawings and specs and whatnot. So, my wife one day came home from work. She was an educator, uh, so she came home and asked, um, "What are you doing?" And I said, "I'm reading." What does it look like? She said, "No, no, no. That's not what I mean. Every day I come home." And you're sitting on the couch. You didn't even wash, you know, all that dust off of you. And you're, and, and you're, you got a Nietzsche, open your, you're halfway through the book that nobody reads. You're the only person that reads Nietzsche. Why don't you consider going to school? I said, huh? Nobody ever said that to me before. So, you know, I, I don't know. I don't remember if she said it more than once, but I wanted to. I tried before when I was in Richmond, wasn't able to go. But, um, so I I enrolled in a local commuter college and it turned out I was good at it. Got a degree in philosophy, minor in French. And I was, uh, very, uh, interested in the Fre- uh, French existentialists. And, um, you know, Nietzsche was kind of my guy for a while, liked his writing most of all. But, um, so I, uh, you know, for the first time, found something that I was good at. And, you know, this was very clear that I, I excelled in this arena. So I graduated and uh, was divorced. Um, that marriage was was doomed to fail her uh, <laughs> previously with nothing. I was homeless in Richmond for some time when I got there. So but I was I was destitute again. Um, now I had student debt and nothing because I was left with nothing. So I was starting over and I asked myself what I could do, what are my skills, and I didn't really want to go back into uh, working in a trade. So I tried to figure out how I could use my skills that I learned in school and my abilities I discovered I had, and uh, was able to land a job after uh, going to South Florida um, with uh, a company that was... uh, a senior living community that served all levels of care, and they had a research division. And so I got a job as a, as a, you know, basically a glorified secretary, um, who worked under the the person in charge of research. And he, you know, introduced me to social science, and uh, I saw applied social science, and I thought, what a freaking tool. You know, this this is something that I could use, and um, and I loved what I learned working in gerontology, but race still followed me around. So I, I had the opportunity, I went and, and got another job then back in Chicago, better job, um, with a different research institute on aging. And through the two different positions, I was able to travel the country and see different um skilled nursing facilities and some unskilled, you know, at more independent levels of living. But what I noticed was, you know, there was a lot of segregation in old, caring for old people. Even within a facility that you would see very few, most of the facilities I would go to, very few non-white people. And when you did, they were typically on their own sectioned off. Um, They didn't really much interact, I noticed. But there was also facilities that were specifically ethnic. Group based, like uh, in Cal- Northern California, I went to a, a really interesting uh, residence for older Japanese people, and you know, I went to places in Chicago that were for you know focused on Mexican Americans. And but what I saw was this health disparity in, in the delivery of care and the conditions. I was like, oh man, this is going to follow me the rest of my life. You know, these people are not being treated right. At the time where they need this help so, you know, so badly. And so I decided I was going to go to graduate school and I was going to focus on these racial issues that had haunted me for so long. But I cared about health too. And I thought that if you could see um racism manifest itself in people's bodies and in and their health and, and physical well-being, mental and physical well-being. Then you know you would certainly be able to convince people to make changes in, in our systems in the world and in our in our thoughts and our ideologies. And so, I went to graduate school um, at a major university, major research university, studying under some famous people um, in, the, in a sociology program. And I um, I was able to earn my master's and my doctorate in just four years. Um, so it was. It was good because I had met my second wife in the process, and she was a little ahead of me. She was moving out into a faculty position um, before I was defending my dissertation. So, long story short, uh, I was married, and um, we had a child um, several years later. I was working at a university again, another research one university. I had a very good job. Um, I was working in a department of medicine. And also um, in the school of public health, and um, so I had sort of do, uh, two roles. I was, I was, I had been focusing my research for forever since the beginning on uh, racial and ethnic disparities in mental health and healthcare in the United States. And I, I took a I'm a quant- quantitatively trained researcher. I take a life course perspective, and um, and. Had focused on um, lesser studied Latino subgroups in mental health and adjustment related to social disadvantage uh, during my graduate program and, and shortly following after. But I moved into health services research later with a focus on severely mentally ill people. Um, and my focus uh, group there was the incarcerated. People in in jails and prisons and halfway houses, who, by the way, not coincidentally, um, are over overrepresent um, black and Latino people. So I was still studying the, the same group that I was interested in, just more severe illness. Long story short, again, I um, I, I was at work. I had my baby. Um, we've talked before, Jack, about the reaction of having your first child as an adopted person. But um, I've never said this uh, in our show, uh, so I'll repeat myself here. Um, When I saw my my baby, my baby girl born, the, the cosmos shifted around me. And I looked at my genetic reflection for the first time and it changed something inside me so deep down, so primal, so ancient that I didn't know existed, um, that I started spinning out of control. Already a severe alcoholic since the time of my early teen years, and still um, struggling with then uh, understood PTSD, but still not formally diagnosed. My drinking spiraled out of control, and um,
1: I ended up in the hospital. Now, do you think that's a moment when um, you start to realize all the things that you had been missing in your life? You know, do you think that that cosmic shift um, had anything to do with the absence of what you had compared to what this child has now?
2: That was the matter at hand, but no, I did not yet understand It took me um, two near death experiences to come to the understanding that would save my life and make it worth living. And the first time uh, I I went to the hospital by ambulance, I uh, I was throwing up buckets of blood. Um, you're a physician, you're familiar with esophageal varices and I had encephalopathy. My brain was swollen. I couldn't think straight. I shouldn't have been driving for a long time. Um, you know, I managed to remain functional for the most part, but I had been at work in my office in, um, uh, where I went, I, where I worked on the prisoner, uh, research. And um, I had, uh, I had a meeting coming up with the IRB. They had some issue with a study that I was running. I had a small grant to study uh, a mental health intervention. And um, I admittedly wasn't on top of my game. I certainly wasn't managing the people who reported to me well enough. But I had this uh, meeting scheduled to defend my practices in this study. We're doing original data collection in a, psych, in a couple of psychiatric clinics, and um, I, I uh, was preparing for the meeting in my cubicle, which was right outside of uh, my boss's, a very famous psychiatrist's um, office. And uh, it was—I t- was only there part time. I had a little office right outside his door, and it always made me nervous <laughs> because, you know, I, I wanted to hide. Um, but, um, I, I, I hit the floor one day, I fell from my chair with a thud on the floor. My boss comes running out. He's a physician, you know, and he turns me over and I, I open my eyes and I look at, I I look at his shiny brown dress shoes. And I realize that I am on the floor in my office, looking at the shoes of my boss, right? A man, I'm, really hoping to impress it was, it'll make my career a little bit easier along the way he says are you okay I said I, I don't know you know don't know what happened I wasn't really clear on what happened I passed out and I had passed out before but never so publicly like this and so hard mm-hmm. and uh, now, had,
1: you been, had you been drinking that evening that day what was there a relation
2: to that? No, I didn't drink before work or during work. Um, I no doubt drank the night before, but at that point um, my health was so bad. I was only able to drink enough to sustain my ability to go to sleep, to get up and function. Um, I wasn't anymore drinking the bottles of vodka that I had been drinking every night. I mean, I drink, a, I would drink a handle of of vodka a night. And, uh, but I wasn't able to do that at this stage. But nonetheless, you know, I was toxified and, um, and, you know, I, I should have been hospitalized long before then. But uh, so, you know, I, I, I drove myself home. He told me to go to the hospital. I worked at a hospital, it was right next door. Um, I refused and I drove myself home, which was just enormously stupid. But um it was shortly after that I, I I had the ambulance called and I ended up at, at the hospital and I was vomiting blood and and I asked in, in triage if I was going to you know be able to get a room or was I was going to be able to get seen. And he said, dude, you're the sickest person in this hospital. You're right up. And um and I said, Oh, I sort of put it into perspective. So you know, this this episode of hospitalization, which was, you know, several days um with de- detoxification involved. It was very painful and terrifying. Um, you know, I was um I was uh, both of uh, both my hospitalizations near the end there, you know, I was completely delirious. And um I had nightmares. And and this first time I had You know, those kind of nightmares when you really don't know if it's real, that you believe it's your life. In fact, I had that level kind of reality to this dream in which I myself was a slave in the Northeast um, nearing 1850 at the end of of slavery. And um, I was black and I was a slave and I was being hauled on a train. To where I would, my new master, my new halt, my new uh, you know, place. And um, it was terrifying. It was that I felt the dehumanization like I never could imagine before. It was as if it was happening to me. Um, I lived and I came home and I remembered that. And I intended to write a book about the story of that dream, but it what allowed me to do was to situate for myself how very deeply racism has damaged me. And that was, that was my insight from that first hospitalization. I tied it to adoption. I knew that I was ill-prepared for racism in the world and, um, and I still didn't deal with it well. Um. So I, I took, you know, as I was healing uh, from that hospital stay, I reflected hard about, um, the lived reality of the dehumanization of racist practices and and i try to situate how that affected me over time you know being falsely arrested and and beaten by the police in in uh in chicago right there in the police station uh lobby um you know being uh jumped in, at the chicago's blues fest for you know walking by and getting too close to her. I, I guess I knocked over a guy's beer I offered to buy him a new one, but, you know, he wanted to call me a speck and hurt me. He didn't get to do that. But, uh, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, there's just so many times across my life that, you know, it was traumatic and I had to really deal with the trauma of race. Now, um, do you
1: feel, you know, you say about being ill-prepared, You know, that, you know, you come out of this ideal, idyllic 60s, 70s, Polish American blue collar neighborhood. You know, you never saw your father deal with racism. You never saw your family deal with racism. And suddenly you're on your own at 19 and you're throwing yourself full out into this. You're like this lily white boy in a (laughs) Latino body um, trying to be the Latino but uh, not quite maybe uh, doing it right. Do you think you you felt, you know, you were inept at. uh... Dude, you know, I I knew I couldn't describe it. You know,
2: I knew I couldn't pretend that I was Latino. I was illegitimate. I couldn't authentically claim Latina dead. You know, it wasn't mine to claim. I didn't speak the language. As a matter of fact, I, like I mentioned earlier, I avoided all association. With my non-white self and reality of that and all that I knew or didn't know about it, um, so when I went to college, my undergraduate years were in a commuter college in uh, the north North Side of Chicago. That was one of, if not the most um, diverse student body populations in any university in the country, and it was mind blowing and eye opening. Um, you know, I, I I dealt with, you know, uh, people who they themselves or their parents directly were from the Asian countries that I studied in my History of East Asia class. There was, you know, um, representation um, from the, uh, the kids of people who marched in, in the major civil rights movements there when we talked about these issues and Um, so, you know, it was, and I had to situate myself within that and it helped me enormously, but it was a long road still left.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, it's, uh, you know, I really empathize for you in this situation, you know, because, you know, you're throwing yourself out there as a, as a Latino and, you know, the other Latinos are like, this guy's no Latino. No, that's right. This pretending really didn't stop for you. No. you know in a lot of ways you know you were you know at first you were pretending to be polish maybe and then you know later on now you're pretending to be you know that your authentic self is such a blend of so many different things you have never seen anyone like you i hadn't you know for me it, you know there was a
2: lot of resentment about um the definition of the american uh you know i was by all measures you know an average american but i was still yelled at from car windows to go home go back to where i came from and um you know the injustice that i felt about it was just enormous and a lot of my you know early adult years was spent in a feeling of racial like a, a racial animus um there there was i was very unsettled Even though, you know, I was no longer lying about what I knew about myself, Mm -hmm. I still hadn't situated any positive social identity um, along with
1: with my brownness, you know. I mean, it's a, a, you know, I mean, I can completely empathize with that as well. You know, that, you know, later in my life, it turns out that I'm, you know, coming out black, that as a portion of me is black. And I tell this to people and they're like, but Jack, you're not black. You don't look black. You didn't go through the black things, you know? Um, So once again, it's a, it's a neither nor, you know, that we, we talked a little bit when we, when we talked about the um, Betty Jean Lifton book, you know, she mentions in that, that, you know, adoptees are neither nor, you know, they're not, they're in between between, that they are, you know, like, like Peter Pan. They're not a real kid. Yeah. You, you know,
2: I still can't claim a, an authentic Latin American identity, nor can I claim an authentic, you know, Euro-American identity, even though that's how I was raised. You know, mm-hmm. I'm I am the original Puerto Rican, Chilean hillbilly from the mountains of New Jersey and peppercorn and a salt shaker. I have been. And, you know, I I still kind of li- exist like yeah. this.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, like we are unique in a way, you know, like I said, that's, you know, so much of our similarities and I think our our understanding of one another come from that same, you know, you and I can talk about these things, but, you know, when I'm with my Italian people, I'm Italian. When I'm with my black people, I'm black. When I'm with, you know, my doctor people, I'm doctor, you know, that, you know, to just be me would kind of be nice. And, And I think that you probably share in that to not have to explain or go into this, this long, you know, soliloquy about who you are. It would be nice to just be you. Correct. Well, I, you know, I agree. I I'm working on
2: just being me, but I'm still figuring out who that is. And, you know, I've made some great progress. I'm, you know, oddly, um, I feel as I did when I was a boy, before i was terribly confused mm-hmm. you know i knew i was different i just didn't know that that difference was going to pose such a dilemma
1: now we talked about this as far as the you know coming out of the fog yeah. you know would you want to be back in the fog you know the naivety of you know some of the you know like no that's not you know, me for me it's like you know did i not want to you know if i could go back to not knowing my 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 birth parents Um, and there's an element of me that misses the nostalgia, but I would never give up the authenticity that I've since gained. Right. And at least, you know, even though, you know, I may be uncategorizable, at least I have a me that makes more sense. And it sounds like for you, you know, this coming out of the fog experience has, has revealed the you that had been hidden or so many layers of. So many layers of culture veiled on top of them
2: as you know from our many conversations um i have a real hard time defining the self it is a something well, you know not technically i could wrap the words around it what i mean is to come to um to come to some relaxed feeling about the idea that there is some natural me that but you know i we've come to feel more comfortable in my skin, you know, since I came out of the hospital the second time, which I haven't yet described, um, you know, after coming out of the fog, I, I can, it's my health was just immediately improved, but I had continued drinking after my first hospitalization. I'm not sure that I was uh, at the same rate of decline as I was immediately following my daughter's birth prior to my first hospitalization, but I was, I was packing them away pretty good. And, uh, you know, I don't sleep well and never have. So, um, that was, that was adding to the problems. Um, I ended up going back to the hospital and same story. I was vomiting blood. My throat was torn up. Um, This time it wasn't very clear if I was gonna make it, even less clear than it was the first time. I should have been a goner probably, but uh, I went to a first hospital and I was treated, well, I didn't mention this earlier, I was treated very badly in this hospital the first time I was there. That's a whole other story. But I ended up back in that hospital and mind you, I had PTSD. Being in the hospital in the first place is very disempowering and very uncool for people like me. But then I was back there again after a bad experience there, and I was delirious. So I was a very troubled patient, a troublesome patient. And I had very little sense about me. And I, you know, I couldn't control my body (laughs) very much. So I was, you know, I was restrained. And neglected and even you know ridiculed both times um at the same hospital, which made me worse. It made my PTSD out of control. They gave me drugs I shouldn't have had, things that you know it didn't interact well. And um so I go into you know what I believe to be a near-death experience state. I was on a ventilator. I was patched I was hooked up, you know. And you, well, you could tell me better than I that I know how I was hooked up there. It's basically on life support. And, um, and my wife wasn't able to be there. So I was alone. And I was very aware that not only was I alone, but I was in hostile territory. At least that was what was in my head, as it usually is for somebody with PTSD who's feeling disempowered. So in my mind, I, I see myself reaching out from my hospital bed although I can only reach my hand up a little bit because I was restrained. And um, I, I'm not even sure I was actually lifting my hand, but I started screaming out. I was crying out for help. And I first cried out for my wife. I cried out and she wasn't there. She, nobody, nobody came to help. She wasn't helping. Then I cried out for my sister, which I reflected on at the moment and felt was odd. And then I cried, you know, the sister I grew up with, and then I cried out for my mother. And as I was doing that, I realized that it wasn't the mother that raised me that I was reaching out for, but the mother that I then realized in that moment that I had been grieving my entire life. I don't know if I was physically yelling or screaming like I thought I was, you know, I don't know. I'm not a religious person. I wouldn't even describe myself as a spiritual person but I had a great epiphany in that moment and I understood that I was traumatized by my abandonment I was lucky enough to live and reflect
1: on that truth and so that brings us here today wow I mean you know yeah I've heard this story a number of times and I think you you really gave a good uh, feel for it this time. I mean, I, I you did a great job of just digging down deep because these these some of these emotions and feelings are so buried, you know, in our own psyche, you know, with our own walls that we have built up and constructed. And you don't want to okay. tear down the walls that you so carefully. But you know, this process of you know what we're going through this you know, rewriting your, your story or figuring out your story or trying to define your identity or understand that you have an identity. Yeah. Um, it brings you to places where it's difficult to go. So, you know, thank you for for really digging into that because that, that was heartfelt, honestly.
2: You know, I've I've always prided on myself on my intellectual honesty. I think it's one of my best traits. It's one of the traits that I've allowed myself to be proud of, even prior to being proud of other things more recently. And that intellectual honesty um, was what I needed when I was on my deathbed, facing the truth of my grief. I, I had a choice. I could have called that a phantom, a delusion, Right, meaningless, <laughs> right? Grasping at straws. I could have made different sense of it. Yeah. But in a way, no, I couldn't have done that because yeah. the reality of it was cosmic.
1: Yeah. Now, Michael, our next plan we talked about, and this maybe this is a good time to think about it after mm-hmm. you know spilling your guts here and uh you know getting down to the the, the nitty-gritty that uh You'd propose bringing one of your childhood friends on, yeah, yeah, and yeah. So I, I've
2: talked to my very good friend of uh, thirty plus years, Blue. I mentioned him earlier. He um, he became a friend uh, in Richmond when I first left my hometown, and he was one of the first per- people to know of my new ability to call myself Hispanic.
1: Talk to him and kind of get. Uh, you know Michael said he was messed up all these years. Did you see it or what did you see? You know, it, <laughs> I'll be interested uh, to see what he says. Yeah. When you when you brought that idea to me, I'm like, that's great. I would love to bring a few few people in here as well. But um, you know, this is a good way to start. And uh I'm looking forward to that. I think that's gonna be uh really interesting. Yeah, me too. Well, thanks again, Michael. I think um, you know, you really gave a, a good a uh, broad view of of your life and where you are today as it stands uh when your friend blue comes on the next episode i think we want to get into a little bit about some of the reunion and how you've recovered um you know we've we've heard the 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 low point but clearly you have you know you have blossomed in so many ways as you know in, in your 40s that <laughs> you are you know I, I i find you to be a very impressive a very intelligent guy who also has you know a good deal of uh street scars so you're you're a badass with a brain so um <laughs> i appreciate that and and I'm, it's an honor to to work with you and uh have these but i look forward to hearing from blue and see what he has to say about all this i look forward to that too so well thank you and uh let's let's meet again you know on the next episode until next time
0: It's a relic in your old hands and strong words to fight with I think we should walk away I saw you through the glass door And I was acting on my best space